I had, a, I had a great talk with somebody yesterday after, after one of my sessions, and I said, so, so what's your passion uh, for the, f in, in healthcare? And he said, it's to make it visual and exciting at, and fun and to use the right brain and to put some music into it. I thought, that is great because serious topics need some humor and need some fun, and we need right brain and left brain. Uh, you may not be getting much of that this morning, in which case I apologize. Uh, you can wait until Saturday evening on the town for that. But anyway, um, and so I can't even joke about my, my glass of gin here, because you've heard that before. Terrible. Okay, so let's, let's get going. Um, I'm not going to explain who I am. It's too boring, and sometimes I forget. Okay. Um, <laughs> Global health and emerging trends. Guys, we're in the most amazingly interesting and important moment because the Millennium Development Goals are, I don't know if the word is expiring, that sounds a rather terrible thing to say about them. They're coming to an end in 2015 and the world and WHO and UNDP and USAID and all the others, they are looking for what is next in terms of the way we meet the global health challenges of the 7 billion people on planet Earth, of whom 1 billion have virtually no access to health care at all. Some of those are in North America, some of those are in Glasgow, but most are in the developing world. So that's what we're going to be talking about a little, I hope. Uh, and we were going to do some interactive stuff, but uh, that might not be quite so easy. We'll see how we get on. Uh, the extroverts and those who've got important things to say might put up their hands. Let's hope and pray. Okay, <laughs> terrific. Um, good. I just want to give you a little bit of background, and you will know this, but we need to just be reminded of it. And this is the uh, scary statistic, which I can't keep coming back to. And every, every year it creeps up. It was 4 million a few years ago. It's now 4.3 million health workers in the world that do not yet exist. That's doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals. That is fairly scandalous. Medical, students are, medical schools are opening all over the world fast, but is the answer necessarily more doctors or even more nurses for the poorest communities? Will they ever go there? They haven't much yet. So it's part of the answer, but guys, it's only a small part in my view. Okay, so this scary thing, the sort of inverse care rule that 90% of the doctors serve 10% of the people and 10% of the, uh, and vice versa. So the poorest people do not get the health care they need. And that's a really important thing for us to grasp. Because unless we've worked and we've sweated it out in, in, the, in the outback ourselves, and we worked in the inner city, we don't always get that point that the neediest people do not have the health care they need. Okay, so I want to just leave that in front of you, which is obvious, uh, and the one-seventh of the world that has no access to health care, the one-seventh of the world, one billion people who have no access to health care. When they get ill, they either die or they get better, or if they're very lucky, they have a rich relative who can take them to a hospital. That's scary. And in our medical schools, we are not being informed about that, and we're not yet forming a model that's going to work for those people. The new challenges, that's been going on since the time of Socrates and, and Noah. But the new challenges I just wanted to bring up, 
the food shortages and ri rising food prices. There was, a, uh, there was a BBC program recently about not how difficult it is in America and Europe and so forth and so on, but how absolutely crippling it is in developing countries, the effect of the recession. It hasn't yet hit, but it's starting to. So food shortages, wheat has gone up in price by 30% in the last three months. That's going to have a devastating effect on, on child nutrition, which has been improving, but is in danger now of stalling and going backwards. We've got water scarcity. Uh, there are a whole bunch of pundits. Uh, I can't remember what they call themselves, but anyway, they're trying to define the five biggest challenges to face the world and its security in the next 10 to 15 years. Water scarcity is one of those, and interesting, so is global warming, and they are people from across the scientific spectrum. So we've got the increase in drought and flooding, the Arctic Ocean uh, increasingly now opening up to all sorts of nations who want to exploit its riches because the ice is melting. Uh, we've got the global economic downturn we've talked about a little bit, and we've got worsening health and security situations. Um, I work at an organization in London called Interhealth. We look after mission agencies. We do the health care um, of people working abroad, missionaries, aid workers, government supporters, an increasing number of people I see are coming back and going out to war zones or insecure locations or places that have been secure and are now less secure, northern Kenya, many, many other places. So that's a big worry, and that's the context we've got to be thinking about. Okay, so that's some of the background. Now, I just want to talk about some of the emerging health priorities Yes, mainly in the developing world, but I don't want to say just the developing world, in resource-poor areas. By the way, in the wonderful city of Glasgow, are any Scots here? Anyone from Scotland? Anyone from Glasgow? Okay, well, there is a 27-year difference in life expectancy from the outer suburbs where the bankers live to the inner heart sink estates where people are too frightened to go out on the streets. There is a 27-year life expectancy difference as you drive 10 miles in Glasgow. So let's remember that the world is increasingly full of inequalities, bizarre inequalities. Rich one area, poor the next. And that's not just a developing world. That is also Washington. That is also London. Uh, and that is also Lusaka. So we need to think of these huge uh, inequalities. And as we talk, therefore, we're thinking about infectious diseases, we're thinking about addictions, we're thinking about non-communicables, all these different things. So the emerging health priorities, they're huge. And guys, as we go through these, I know a lot of you are experienced people and you're already in your professions, but if you're just wondering, where does God want me to belong, the purpose of this conference, as we go through these, just... See if, as I mention the word, or as something comes up, there's a little sort of tick in your mind, there's a little extra systole, which may not just be from too much coffee this morning. It may be because God's actually, I reckon actually God sometimes speaks to extra systoles. You know, you think, oh, that's a really, wow, Ooh, terrific. That may just be me, anyway. So, uh, uh, there must be the heart attacks and hypertension. So, what we are coming up with is, is the non-communicable diseases. Uh, these are now responsible for the deaths of half the world's population, including half the world's developing world population. Half of all the people now do not die from infectious diseases, hugely important still. They die from these uh, emerging 
non-communicables, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is very, very high on the list. Anybody really excited about that subject? I find it's a very hard one to get excited about. I mean, I go running, and when I puff and blow, I think I'd better look that up on, the, on Google it when I get back, but basically not necessarily very exciting, really important. Uh, with apologies to any enthusiastic respiratory physicians that I've just offended. Cancer, obviously. Mental health issues. Stick up your hand if you have got an interest in mental health issues. If that is one of the things that turns your light on, mental health issues. Any psychologists here? Hooray, fantastic. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but you, you need a medal here. Any psychologists, psychiatrists? And yet, 30% of the world's population suffer from a mental health illness at some time during their life. Where are the psychiatrists? There are some countries in the world where there are no psychiatrists. That's not the answer to community problems uh, where there is a mental health element. That can be often done at the community level. But guys, mental health issues. And it's terrifying how few people are interested in the United Kingdom, psychiatry is the least popular medical speciality in the medical schools. Addictions to alcohol and drugs. Is anybody working with, uh, with, uh, amongst people with addictions? All sorts of addictions. Guys, that might just ring a little bell. This is hugely, hugely important. Disability. Anybody here, any, any physical therapists? We call them physiotherapists. In, in, I don't know why. Physical therapists here? No. Anybody who is interested and committed to um, disability, physical disability, blindness-related issues, these are hugely important. A recent survey which um, some friends of mine carried out in a whole lot of remote Himalayan communities, one, 30% of the population in these villages suffered from some sort of disability, hearing impairment, physical or mental disability, or, or partial or full blindness. Amazing. So these are the, some of the issues. Now here are a few more. I'm wheeling them in. I'm sorry. Uh, if I start, see people going, <laughs> um, I'm sorry about that. But I mean, that basically is what I was asked to talk about. Smoking-related diseases. More on that in a moment. Not a terribly exciting subject to get involved with, but my goodness me, so important. Family planning and reproductive health. Exit the Christian health community because they are so concerned about certain ethical issues, probably rightly, that they dare not get involved in the sexual and reproductive health issues which are fundamentally important in the developing world. Ergo, the whole of that area is taken over by secularists who do not have a Christian worldview. Guys, we need to get into sexual and reproductive health and family planning issues. It's scandalous to me how Christians have backed out of that, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. And I know there are good reasons, but there are even more important reasons to engage. Did Jesus ever not engage with the topic because it was difficult? Okay, elderly and palliative care, that'll be me in a few years' time, having kind people sort of mopping my brow and bringing me the gin and tonic I've denied myself all my life. Uh, okay, uh, so that's really important. And palliative care in the developing world, where more and more people will become, will become older, unable to get out of their homes, what resources are there available? Community-based palliative care, that is a wide-open area. Preparedness for pandemics, a SARS-2, 
a really nasty avian flu. That is really important. I, I went round, had the privilege of going round our sort of secret location in the UK recently, where there are 160 different laboratories keeping on top of any possible emerging outbreak. We've had two nasty coronavirus uh, cases recently, both from the Middle East. They haven't spread, but we're waiting for that. If you haven't seen the film Contagion yet, do. Okay. Right. Injuries from civil conflicts and theatres of war. Think of all those people in Syria now who have got no access to healthcare because it's too dangerous even for the Red Cross to get in there. So people with the courage, people with the courage of the, uh, of the Marines in healthcare to go behind the lines and do battlefield care or care amongst uh, guerrilla conflicts in, in, in a number of different places. That is a really key area. Um, and then again, remembering these extreme differences. Sorry, it's a big list, isn't it? But I'm just hoping as I go through that that it doesn't put you to sleep, but you get those extra sister lists from the ones that just make, make you think, hmm, perhaps that's something that I could get involved with. If you do, find other people who are interested and join a network so you don't feel that you're a lone voice. We've just been doing a session on networks. They are very important. Networks turn into health movements, and health movements change the world. And if you've got a 1,000 people saying... Human trafficking is unacceptable and those people get together and they write to governments, then things start to happen. And as Christians, we got to speak with one voice. Whoops. Fortunately, don't need an orthopedic surgeon yet. Great. Okay. Uh, Non-communicable diseases. Put up your hand if you find non-communicable diseases an interesting subject. I do. I think they're phenomenally interesting. I think they're fascinating medically and I think they're fascinating sociologically. So I was just saying earlier... In all countries of the world, they're the leading cause of death, but, 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 uh, the expert on NCDs, uh, Roger Beaglehull, who's until recently been working at the WHO leading this whole area, is actually saying that what we really need to deal with these at community level are not more doctors to take blood pressures, it's more community health workers and non physician clinicians who can be working at community level because they can find the cases and they can treat the cases and they can make sure that people take their treatment. So that is uh, an amazing message. More on that in a moment. Okay, tobacco control. Tobacco control is largely best controlled by advocacy against the big companies, not investing in Philip Rothman, and making sure that your government increases the prices of cigarettes. That is known from an evidence-based viewpoint to have more impact than anything else. And why is it important? This is the reason it's important. These are, these are figures from, the, from an article in The Lancet, 2008. Tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death in the world. The leading cause of preventable death in China at the beginning of the 19th century was opium, and that trade was started and initiated and fought over by the British. Uh, there have always been scandals in history whereby those wanting to make money out of other people's illness have done so. And guys, at the moment, it's the tobacco companies. And if anybody uh, wants to shoot me afterwards or kidnap me, that's fine, because I love being an American. I don't necessarily want to go back to England. But I... <laughs> Though I do have a fantastic wife waiting for me. Um, at least I hope she is. Right. So, <laughs> so here we've got the leading cause of preventable death in the world. Uh, one 
person in ten, adult in, de, in ten dies from tobacco. It kills a person every six seconds. That is the estimate. This kills loads more people than wars. Tobacco kills loads more people than wars. The secondhand smoke. Nearly a quarter of a million people die from secondhand smoke every year. Kids. In, with parents who smoke in the home or in the car. Uh, so, but, but who is doing the integrating tobacco control? Does anybody here know any, know any program working at community level that is to do with tobacco control? If Nathan Grills was in, the world, was, was in the room, he would tell us about an amazing program in India. But that's a big issue. It's not hugely exciting for many of us, but it's really important. It's an emerging health issue, massively. Uh, some, uh, some poor people in Bangladesh spend over a tenth of their annual income on cigarettes. Right. Children. Put up your hand if you're a pediatrician or interested in pediatrics. Well, fantastic. If you were working in the developing world, you would be looking after half the population. In fact, really, the pediatricians are the mainstream doctors, and we should be calling the uh, people, the, the, the internal uh, surgeons and, and, and uh, what we call physicians in the UK, uh, looking after the adults in the minority in some countries, because children are in the majority uh, they're half the population. Do you realize that in Zambia, half the population are under 16? And the average family size is now six surviving children. So all the needs of children and all the needs of adolescents. Now, just so that you, I know you are, you're still listening to me and you were listening to that fantastic speaker <coughs> yesterday. Tell me what age adolescence starts at. Eight, yeah, and tell me what age adolescence finishes. Yeah, I think it means 34 or 36. Uh, put up your hand if you're still an adolescent. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So all the children, but all the adolescents and all those complex issues of adolescents who are in developing countries suspended between the adolescent paradigm of 20 years ago and the adolescent paradigm of the emerging years, with all that confusion, with all that temptation. This is a crucial area to get into as Christians. Adolescent health care, and, and, we, and we can define it any way we like to. Okay, and the commonest currently in Zambia, the commonest six causes of Death in children, preventable death, diarrhea, malaria, neonatal infection, preterm delivery, and lack of oxygen at birth. A bit of a surprise to non-pediatricians that those are some of the really key current issues. So it's not surprising that Bill Gates is funding a lot of uh, new amazing programs for, uh, for children. So that, you think, where do all those statistics come? They come from another of these wonderful groups of experts who get around a table, and this particular group is called the UN Interagency Group for Child Mortality Estimates, um, uh, 2011. Amazing. Uh, okay. Now, 22. urban health care. Put up your hand if working in the city is what you're doing now. Any city, North America? Yeah, fantastic. Put up your hand if you are either working now or, or hoping, or even perhaps hoping not, but wondering if God is calling you to work in a developing world city. 
I thank God for that. Do you know, I, I, I don't... Talking is not one of the main things I do. But when I, when I, when I give lectures, I, I ask that question. I've never had so many hands go up. Just put your hands up again if you've got that interest in urban health care. I thank God for that. I think that's amazing because look at, the, look at these figures. I mean, the, the, the world is moving towards cities. Interestingly, in the UK, it's moving out of cities because people prefer the countryside. That may be the emerging trend, but not yet in the rest of the world. Um, and the whole of revelations about the holy city. So it strikes me that God has got something. The city is a special place for God. And I think that's one of the reasons that it is so under stress and so under temptation. And therefore, all the more reason for us to be working within urban environments. Very difficult, very complex, but doable. Okay. Um, Right, well, this is where I hoped we might have our little cosy 15 people around the table, which I was rather expecting what would uh, happen. Uh, Over to you. What can we do about this? And I'm going to make this a little bit simpler. And I'm just going to say, guys, bearing in mind all these problems and bearing in mind that a large number of these problems are actually community-based. I guess, ultimately, they all are. They're based in communities And bearing in mind that doctors, as yet, are not reaching those parts of the world that are most needed, what we call the Heineken factor. Do you use that term? Heineken is a beer which reaches the parts that no other beer reaches. And for those Christians in the UK who are beer drinkers, which I include myself amongst, it's a very, very useful thing. We talk in England about the Heineken factor. That aspect of whatever we're talking about that gets down to where no other sort of paradigm has got to it, the Heineken factor. So the Heineken factor here is what is going to get down to the community level? Because people get ill in communities and then they have to go to hospitals. Shouldn't it be that most of the cure and the diagnosis happens in the community? Because going to hospital is very expensive and very frightening and most people in the developing world can't get there easily. So we need a model that's going to work at community level. I've already given you the answer, haven't I? I was going to say any ideas of models of healthcare that will work in the context we've described. Can anybody just say a little bit more about a model of healthcare they think in the next 10 years is going to have the most effect on the neediest people in the world? Yeah. Um, I worked in the slums of Kenya for a little while, and there they identify leaders in the community and they train them in basic healthcare practices. So it's people who are already leaders in the slums are now being trained and then they still live in the slums and they can help their next door neighbors and things like that. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Anybody want to endorse that? Stick up your hand. You think that's a great idea? Yes. Okay. Absolutely wonderful. Somebody um, once uh, said to me, I think this was when I was traveling to India, they said, you, you, you Westerners, you, you come in and you look at, look at the, the poor world. Do you realize that in a community of 200 In the poorest communities, in a community of 200, there is, given the right background and education, a potential prime minister and a potential world-class actor and a potential world-class football player. You call it soccer. Okay. (laughs) In a community of 200, it is the... The assets, the gifts, the creativity, the ability to solve communities' own health programs lies in 
community leaders who need to be trained, encouraged, affirmed, believed in, and the community health workers. So thanks for that fantastic answer. Does anybody just want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. So that's fantastic. Thank you. So it's the community leaders and it's, and it's the trained community health workers or, or village women who've been trained in basic skills who can actually do a lot of the work. Fantastic. Put up your hand if you want to endorse that one as well. It's a bit like X Factor. Sorry. <laughs> right. Uh, which I don't watch, by the way. Uh, I watch um, Strictly Come Dancing instead, which is uh, much better. Okay. So what we need to do is to, is to fix the cause and to turn off the tap of ill health. And we can do most of the turning off of the tap in the community. I'll tell you a scary story I heard when I was in Kenya uh, just six months ago. Somebody, I will not name the hospital, it was in East Africa, who came from outside, said, I would like to find out how much this hospital has had an impact on the actual health patterns of people living within four kilometers of the hospital. And they went and they asked people within four kilometers of a fabulous hospital that's been there for 100 years, how many of you people, uh, when you get pregnant, go to the hospital for your pregnancy? One in four, three in four didn't. And the main reason they were given was because they couldn't afford the bus fare. You see, hospitals, we need hospitals, and I've had my life saved twice in a hospital, actually, and it could happen again here, but it's a good place if I do collapse. I still go, I still go running, by the way, so it's unlikely to happen. Hospitals are fantastic, but actually most of these, most of these conditions can be dealt with at community level, but not by the hospital unless there is a community-based health program. Now, I meant, to, I meant to give you some sort of good references, good academic references. So this is not meant to be a session on waffle from Ted about nice ideas. I'm going to try to earth it a little bit more in evidence because that's really important. So a little bit of evidence, guys. I think that's what's coming up next. Yes, community health workers. So put up your hand if you have been involved in any community health worker program in, in anywhere in the world. Yes, a lot of hands going up. That's terrific. Okay, their re-emergence. We worked in India for a number of years, my wife and myself, and my three, three little girls all under 10 who joined in the fun and games when they weren't at school. And uh, we were working in a resource-poor area, and uh, none of the uh, 30 or 40 villages we were working in, could put, none of them could go to hospital. And if they did, they didn't want to go because they were frightened of it. It was far too expensive, and they were scared to get on the bus because it was a two-hour dangerous journey. So nothing happened in the community until... Uh, the wonderful group I was working with, the Emmanuel Hospital Association of India, some people will know about it, said we must start a health program training community health workers. And it was incredible, incredible what started to happen. Now, in India at the moment, there are currently 325,000 health guides. Anybody live or work in India and know about ushers? Accredited Social Health Activists is the name for the community health worker in India. And there are currently 325,000. Uh, increasing all the time. Some of them are working well, some aren't. 
but they are working at community level to turn off the tap of ill health. Fantastic. A lot of doctors don't like that. Fewer private patients. Uh, not so many MRI scans. Um, Ethiopia is training 80,000 community-based uh, extension workers. And do you know what's happened in Ethiopia in the last 12 months? Every household in Ethiopia, or nearly every household in Ethiopia, has been given a family folder in which they record their own illnesses and they have somebody trained to work alongside them. 20 million families have now got what is called a family folder, which interestingly came out of India and projects in Ludhiana Hospital 20 years ago, so that there can be family-orientated stuff. Most families can identify illness and treat the illnesses themselves. Even malaria, even pneumonia can be treated by well-informed family members and community health workers. I'm getting radical. Some of you will say, ooh, that sounds so dangerous. Right, okay. Um, and worldwide, Bangladesh, wonderful program called BRAC, B-R-A-C, Millions of people have been trained under that. Pakistan's fantastic lady health workers. Lady health workers in Pakistan have been making tremendous differences in some of the urban areas. Kenya, Uganda, Ghana, and so forth. So we've got a, we've got a new world movement which is based on community health workers. Do they work? Nice idea. Do they work? Well... Uh, the Cochrane database has just done some research on this, and this, the, this is their findings from 2010, and, and there is lots of new evidence since then. We know that well-trained community health workers can deal with so many of these emerging health problems we've been talking about. The infectious diseases, the addictions, the mental health, and the non-communicable diseases. And that was some of their findings. And I'll tell you another great finding since then. I think this is really exciting. Postnatal depression is worldwide and uh, is, just, is just one of those things that women's bodies go through. And it's not a Western thing. It's a universal thing. Uh, there is some recent research published in one of the peer-reviewed international journals which shows that community health workers with two days of intensive training can reduce and help and cure nearly 80% of people, of women in the village who've got postnatal depression. Isn't that amazing? Just some simple uh, techniques in cognitive behavioral therapy from previously illiterate community health workers. That can make a difference to all these things. The doctors won't get there, guys. We will not, we will not be the Heineken as doctors. We will encourage, we will, we will strengthen. Nurses will be doing this probably more than doctors. We can encourage, we can advocate for better policies, but it's a matter of empowering and facilitating communities to do it themselves. Um, I thought that was... Very interesting indeed. That was an article from The Lancet. So now, if you've got artesianate suppositories in malaria endemic areas in Africa in the bag of the community health worker, why should any kids die from the malaria? They die from malaria when they're misdiagnosed or they can't get to hospital in time, or when they do get to hospital, everybody's too busy to look after them, and I've seen that happen. Um, but actually, just sticking, a, sticking a, a suppository up the bum of the kid will actually cure the malaria. They may still go to hospital to get further checked. That's the sort of thing that is going to make all the difference to these emerging health problems. Hypertension. It's possible and easy to train community health workers to take blood pressures 
and then to make sure that everybody takes their pill every day. Directly observed treatment is what it's called, DOTS. So all sorts of amazing opportunities there. We're running out of time here. Um, guys, the Mission Hospital is still really crucial and important, and that's been written recently about in the New England Journal of Medicine and in the Lancet. And so if you feel that your role is in the Mission Hospital, fantastic, but there needs to be renewal and revitalization and change for them to be effective. If anybody's interested in that, email me, because the Salvation Army has done some amazing things, and I'm just in connection with them. Okay, the big new idea, we've nearly finished, but there's a big new idea out there in UNDP, World Health Organization, World Bank, beyond the Millennium Development Goals. Do, you any, do any of you know what this big new overarching theme is? Well, it's called UHC. Have you come across UHC? Well, I only came across this about two months ago because it's, it's sudden, it is suddenly hitting the headlines. You're going to hear about UHC until you go crazy. It's universal health coverage. And what it means is that, that everyone has access to affordable health care as near to their homes as possible. Mexico has just enshrined universal health care as being a fundamental right of citizenship. That is not the same, excuse me for being rude, as north of the border. It's not quite the same as in the UK. We talk about the National Health Service, which 90% of us love, and which, although creaking, is fantastic, but it's not getting through to some of the poorest people, the asylum seekers, the people who are, are living on the streets, uh, and, and those who do not speak the normal languages that doctors in England speak. They, do, they are still outside the system. UHC is going to be the big overarching thing. So how are we going to make uh, affordable health care as near to homes as possible? How is that going to come about? Well, this is a really exciting debate, guys. You need to get involved in this. You need to say, right... I know an organization that might be able to help. It's called the church. Nearly every community in the world has got a church or a mosque or a temple. Supposing all those churches were not just preaching salvation, let them go on doing that, but supposing those churches had church members trained in basic health care to look after all the members of the community. That would revolutionize health care. And that's why all the big boys, the UNDPs and the, and the, and the academics, they're saying, you faith-based groups who used to be a little bubble up there, which we all thought were rather odd, we now realize that you actually already are providing 40% of the health care in sub-Saharan Africa. Join the party. Join the party. We won't necessarily invite you to the top table, but you can be in the same room. Guys, we need to make sure that we are at the top table when, we're, when policy is being decided about how to meet these emerging health needs. And that means we've got to be evidence-based, we've got to be smart, we've got to take risks, we've got to work with each other, we've got to work with people we don't necessarily agree with for the common good of putting the role of the faith-based organization as part of the policy for the future of world health, the future of global health. Please get this message. Please be excited about that. 
the church can do a fantastic amount as the perfect community organization with good training and with the pastors bidding into this. And Tear Fund is planning in the next five years to work with 100,000 churches worldwide so that they can provide basic health and development to their communities. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, that's what serving the world is. That's your kingdom come, your will be done. And Community Health Evangelism, CHE, led by Terry Dalrymple and, and Stan Rowan here, I don't know if they're in the room, I think they're giving talks, they are planning to do the same. So part of the emerging health problems are going to be wonderfully met by the empowered, facilitated church. Guys, that's what we must be really aiming for. I find this really exciting. I want to just jump up and down with excitement over it. Okay. Um, we've got two minutes left. I'm just going to run through this tier fund thing because it, it's very quick. It's just three minutes, but it just... It just uh, gives you an idea. This is, this is a program built on this whole idea of togetherness and transforming the church and a wonderful way in which that happens. But I want the cartoons here just to, uh, to help you get the point here. That in the past, you know, we've had, we've had the old sort of bishops and so forth uh, just not being quite sure what to do and being great on the evangelism but having not quite made the connection here. And, um, and then, of course, uh, it takes uh, a long time to do community-based uh, health care, and it has to go at the speed of the community. That's difficult. And uh, the wonderful thing about Emoja is that it is using, even in non-Christian communities, Bible stories, because actually the Bible, you know, you can write the most unbelievable community health manual just from Bible stories. It's been done by loads of people. Fantastic. Put up your hand if you've been involved in that sort of thing. Okay, well, that is out there, and that's amazing, because this is a completely acceptable way of getting healthcare messages across through Bible stories. Amazing. So that's part of, uh, of what's happening. So all those things. Right. Um, I'm going to leave you with one final slide at the end, but it's already time, and I'm sorry we haven't had more participation. This is your chance to ask a question, disagree with me. Thank you. Yes. That is a really interesting question. One third of all American medical students now do a placement abroad in international health. That was a figure that came out last year, one third. I mean, that is amazing, isn't it? I find in the UK that there are just loads of people sitting on the edge of their chair saying, how can I make the world a better, healthier place? It's just, it's just phenomenal. But it's difficult to know the career paths and so forth. And that's the thing which uh, we're talking to GMHC about. So... There is an enormous desire, but actually we, we need to now focus that desire. So what I'm saying to people in the room who are not quite sure, meet with other people, find those networks, think of smart ways, and pray that God will actually lead you. You know, as you get up in the morning, you're going to the lift. This happened this morning, and the one person I wanted to meet was coming to the lift at the same time. That's the way God does stuff, brings people together in these wonderful ways. Any other quick questions? Yeah. Speak up, because uh, I can't quite hear. Can you come right up and come? come?
Well, UHC, I haven't, I haven't got time to say it more than, more than this. UHC is an emerging concept. Uh, if you go into the World Health Organization website, you will see some of the debates that are going on, uh, World Bank as well. It's, it's, it's emerging. It only really came out of the woodwork a couple of years ago, and now it's being discussed in endless debates and consultations as to what it actually means, how it can possibly work, what the economics are, how it links into what's already happening. So, so it's an emerging thing, but we need to just keep our eyes on the websites and we need to read the journals. There'll be more and more about it. Okay, and I'm just going to finally put up this um, slide here. Just a few more things that are emerging. That is meant to be wonderfully confusing and make you squint and think, why has he made such a busy slide at the end of a presentation? It's meant to be like that. Um, all the things, guys, we can do. So think outside the box and get out of the boat because that is the way that the church is going to win the world in the next generation. It's not going to be necessarily... It's going to be doing some of the same stuff, but it's going to be largely thinking outside the box and getting out of the boat. Uh, so God bless you. Let's just have a quick prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this conference and thank you for the wonderful people who've been leading it uh, in terms of all the organization and administration. Jesus, we know that you are the source of our life and inspiration and, the, and our future path is from you. And I pray that we would know your future path in this world which is both troubled but at a stage when the church of Jesus Christ can make a big impact. Help us to be part of that. Answer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.